Cybin is without a doubt one of the most interesting psychedelic drug development companies on the market today. Not only are they researching novel delivery methods for existing psychedelics like psilocybin, but they are actively developing novel psychedelic molecules that have very different properties than the psychedelic molecules that everyone is used to. And today, I am bringing you an interview with Doug Drysdale, the CEO of Cybin. This is a fantastic interview. I'm really excited for you to see it. We cover everything from their psilocybin program and how it's different from competitors like Compass Pathways and the Usona Institute. We talk about their novel deuterated tryptamine program. We talk about their partnership with Kernel, which is a brain imaging technology which allows Cybin the ability to easily image the brain while a patient is under the influence of psychedelics. And we talk about about what types of things Cybin might be able to learn from that. And finally, we answer the question that every investor wants to know, which is, is Cybin undervalued by the market or undervalued relative to its peers? So I'm going to bring you that interview in just a second. I have a few things I need to get out of the way first. So we rebranded this channel. It is now called the Integration Conversation. And so if you're looking for us on YouTube or Spotify, you're going to want to look for the Integration Conversation. Um, it's still me. It's still Brahm. It's just a different brand name, different logo. We're trying to really double down on the whole psychedelic thing. And uh, after coming up with a whole list of names, the site of the integration conversation was uh, the way to go. We also have a website at theintegration.co, which you can check out. It's got links to all of the different media that I produce. I also want to give a quick shout out to everyone in the Shroomstocks subreddit and the Shroomstocks Discord community. I posted notices that I would be conducting this interview in those communities, and a couple of people sent me questions to ask Doug. I tried my best to get to every question that was asked of me, um, but even if I didn't get to your question, thank you so much for you know sending your question my way. I can assure you that your question definitely at least gave me some inspiration for some of the other questions that I was able to ask. And I, I've said this before, but one of the things I love about making these videos in this channel is that it is truly like a community effort. Um, the videos that I make are very much guided by the feedback I get from the community and the input that I get from the community. So shout out to everyone that uh, you know sent me a question. Um, speaking of community involvement, I'm thinking of doing sort of like a end of week shroom stock, the psychedelic investing news recap, like a live stream where I sort of just respond to like pieces of media about the psychedelic space. I'm not sure I'm going to do this like every week, but I'm going to try it out. So over the coming week, if you see a specific news story that is interesting, something that maybe doesn't warrant a whole video, but warrants maybe like five minutes of commentary, find me on Twitter at The Real Brom, um, leave a comment on the video, find me on Reddit at The Real Brom, or find me in the Shrooms, in the, uh, Shroomstocks Discord community, and just like shoot me a link to some you know piece of media or some story that you think would be worth like five minutes of commentary. And uh, at the end of this coming week, I will try and do a live stream where I like respond to all of these little stories or bits of media and just kind of give like a five minute take on them. Um, I think that might be kind of a fun thing to do. It's, a, it's an experiment. And uh, so feel free to shoot me a message about that. I think that could be fun. And of course, I want to say thank you to Doug for being generous with his time and coming on the program to talk to me and to talk to all the viewers and answer their questions about Cybin. This is not financial advice. Do not make any buying, selling, trading, investing decisions based on what I said in this video. Only make those decisions because you've done your own research and come to your own conclusions and discuss them with a financial advisor that has their interests aligned with yours. Uh, also, the standard disclosure, which is that I do own shares in Cybin. I also own shares in other psychedelic companies mentioned in this video, like Compass Pathways and Mind Medicine. I do not own any short positions in any psychedelic companies. Um, also, stay tuned. At the end of the video, I do a little... Uh, a recap or analysis of the interview where I talk about some questions that I actually should have asked and regret not asking. I also sort of analyze and read into some of the answers that Doug gave. So uh, make sure to you know listen past the interview to check out that post-interview breakdown. And I think that's it. So let's get to the interview. I present to you Doug Drysdale, the CEO of Cybin. Enjoy. Everyone, we're here with Doug Drysdale. He's the CEO of Cybin, one of the most interesting companies in the psychedelic drug development space. Uh, Doug, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me, Brom. Much appreciated. Uh, absolutely. So I think that um, most of my listeners are probably familiar with Cybin, but for those who are not, would you mind just giving us an overview of the company and then also maybe touch a little bit about uh, your background and how maybe you came to be involved in the company? Sure. Maybe I'll start with that. You know, so I, I, sure. I I'm a pharmaceutical guy. I've been in healthcare for, for 30 years. 
I grew up in the UK. Uh, so my first uh, decade of my career was there. And then I've been in the US for 20 years. Um, I did a bunch of M&A in my early career, building companies uh, in, this, in, the, in the pharmaceutical space across US and Eastern Europe and in Asia as well. Uh, and then the last dozen years or so, I've been the CEO of four different pharma companies, uh, two private, two public, uh, two turnarounds and two startups. So I, I kind of like startup situations and high growth situations and uh, when I can fix things. That's it's, it's just where the, it's just where the fun is, right? Building teams is is, is fun. Um, I, I think there's been a there's been a bit a bit of a common thread through my career. Lots of interactions with CNS businesses and CNS products over the years. Um, my first uh, involvement though with with depression and addiction was really early on. So when I left high school, I was what seventeen. Uh, I worked in a hospital biochemistry lab. And I'd be there in the middle of the night testing blood samples and uh, pretty much all of the intake at that time of the night is from the ER. So, and most of those blood samples were teenage suicide attempts or, or overdoses. Um, so it gives, a, for a 17 year old, that's a pretty eye awakening, sort of uh, eye opening situation. Um, yeah. So, you know, opened my eyes to, to a, a part of society that I didn't really, wasn't really aware of at that age. Anyway, uh, and then uh, like everyone else at Simon at this point, and we're up to about 50 people now, um, pretty much everyone has their own story. You know, some family member or friend or loved one that has been impacted by depression or addiction. And, you know, it just doesn't impact the sufferer. It impacts the entire family and their friend group. It's, it's like a contagious disease. Yes. So, um, so when the opportunity came along to join Simon and being part of it, is, it, was, it was obvious to me. It was sort of serendipitous. So, so what are we doing? Um, I, yeah, we're being quite bold, quite honestly. We're, we're, we're looking to revolutionize how we treat mental illness. Uh, frankly, we've been treating the signs and symptoms of depression and addiction for a long time pretty ineffectively. Um, it's hard for me to see how you might treat a chronic uh, addictive patient with a chronic drug that barely works. You know, the addiction's always going to win. Uh, and, and the same with depression. Um, you know, the, the, the thing, the opportunity with psychedelics is, is the opportunity to, to intervene. And that's literally what these drugs do. Uh, much greater effect sizes, but more than that, a durability of effect that lasts for maybe months at a time, we think. And uh, if you're depressive or you've been depressed, you know, that opportunity to have kind of a clear headspace you know, is very attractive. If you've ever been addicted, you're getting off your addictive cravings for months at a time. Uh, really means a genuine opportunity to change your life, get back to work, reconnect with friends and family, have meaning again. And um, so that's, that's what's driving us. And, uh, but we're doing it in a bit of a different way, you know, with these classical psychedelic drugs that we know an awful lot about for almost 80 years now, uh, LSD, DMT, psilocybin, MDMA. Um, they all, they're all have great potential, but they're all flawed in some way or other. You know, some of them are very long acting, some of them are like mini rocket rides, very short hatching, uh, and others have no bioavailability uh, or very limited bioavailability. So to put it simply, what we're trying to do is fix those flaws and make them more useful as therapeutics uh, and, make, and, and deliver them in a rapid way and in a way that is shorter acting, that can be, we think, more scalable and just more practical for patients and physicians and care and providers. That makes sense. Well, thank you. Thank you for that overview. I think that did a good job of kind of covering everything and giving us a preview of what we're going to talk about in a bit. Um, one thing I, that just came to mind, uh, it seems like unlike a lot of the CEOs of these psychedelic companies, you actually have a you know, pharmaceutical background. Um, so are there any differences between like traditional pharma and psychedelic pharma, or is it just kind of the same thing with different molecules? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, there's not much difference in the practical um, process of developing drugs. You know, FDA, EMA, they set out the processes. We kind of have to follow the rules. Uh, it's a little more tricky with any controlled drug, uh, and you've got to get licenses for each uh, institution and, and for each facility you work at. Schedule one drugs are a little bit different than Schedule two in that you've got to be very specific about your license request, whereas Schedule two is a category, Schedule one's by molecule. But those are just small practical things. Definitely slows down shipping product or molecules across geographies. I think the bigger challenge we're going to have with psychedelic development, uh, right now we're in the fairly easy stage, right? Uh, Preclinical, phase one, early phase two, relatively small studies. 
But as we look at scaling in, into multinational studies, uh, phase three studies, we, the, the challenge will be scaling up institutions uh, that, and uh, locations that are qualified. Uh, we, we've been putting together internally a, a uh, what we think is the best in class uh, psychotherapy training set of modules. Uh, it's actually got six domains in it that we think will provide a, a, a repeatable framework for patients. And it can be adapted to different uh, indications, whether it's depression or, or addiction. But right from the outset, it's important to have uh, consistent therapy training and consistent uh, application of that therapy. I'm hoping that we could, that can lead to some kind of certification for therapists because there certainly aren't enough psychiatrists and there certainly aren't enough psychotherapists available to even run all these uh, phase three studies. There aren't enough investigators right. and there certainly won't be enough therapists when we come to market. Uh, so we're trying to address that issue now. And I think that's going to be one of the biggest challenges is scaling, scaling these uh, clinical trials multinationally. That makes sense. Um, that you asked, you also touched on a question that I was going to ask later, which was about uh, the actual therapy process itself. It's obviously much more than just the drug, right? You have to train a provider, and there has to be maybe some kind of like post uh, drug consumption integration session or something like that. So. Do, is it sort of the case that every company is going to be developing its own sort of therapy process? Like there'll be the Cybin therapy process, there might be the Compass Pathways therapy process, and maybe you'll have like some therapist or provider who's a certified Cybin provider and another one who's a certified this provider, and those are all going to be different treatments. Is that kind of how you see it playing out? Yeah, it, it might play out that way initially, I think to some degree. You know, what we've tried to do is put together something that we can apply consistently. Um, so, there's two, there's two different aspects of this. There's practical delivery of care to the patient once the products are approved. And then there's delivery of therapy during clinical studies, which you absolutely have to have consistent. Right. So it's just logical to put something together. We haven't created, recreated the wheel. We put together the best practice elements that exist today and put them into a package that we think then we can apply over and over again. Uh, so that'll be our, our, the way we go. And for our studies, we'll want our therapists to go through that training. The goal of the therapy uh, is to keep it to the minimum amount needed uh, without doing too little. Right? So it's, it's clear from some of the studies we've seen when the, the psychotherapy is reduced, especially after the session, so in the integrative part of therapy, when that's reduced, the effects are reduced. And we know just anecdotally from people that have used psychedelics um, somewhat recreationally, it's kind of the wrong word, but personally, that right. they, have, they haven't necessarily been life-changing. Mm -hmm. yeah, they're more effective with therapy. Uh, and our goal is to design a therapy program that is the minimal amount needed to be effective for the drug. That makes sense. Yeah, I think people often hear the, the term psychedelic therapy and they kind of forget about the therapy part and just focus on that first word. Um, but let, let's talk a little bit more about what you guys are actually doing here. So your flagship product basically is this sublingual psilocybin. Is that correct? That's and the lead one right now. That's, that's right. the lead one, right? Yep. So what? Um, so maybe we can just talk about uh, an overview of that program. Like why did you pick psilocybin? What is special about this sublingual delivery system and why does that maybe give it an advantage over some of these other offerings that we're seeing from, you know, Compass Pathways, the USONA Institute and other, um, you know, psychedelic research companies? Yeah, like psilocybin is a natural choice when you start looking at this space. Um, more work has been done on that molecule than any other, really. Uh, we know a lot, a lot more about the potential benefits. We know a lot about the metabolism and the chemistry and the safety profile of psilocybin. Um, we know that it potentially has benefits in depression and different forms of addiction. Uh, so what, from a risk point, point of view, when you're looking at investing funds in drug development, it makes sense to go where the data is. Um, but when we look at psilocybin in its natural, in its common state, right, uh, in its raw state, um, uh, and given orally, it's it's only about fifty to sixty percent, maybe forty to fifty percent bioavailable. So you lose a lot of the drug in the GI tract and and through the liver, uh, and that's pretty inefficient. It also means that uh, you give end up giving more active drug than you actually need at the site of action, um, and you're waiting for all that time for for that to kick in. 
So our first program, which is taking a, a slightly more rudimentary approach than our deuterated molecules, is to use a formulation approach, and we're using a sublingual delivery. And this is like a film uh, that uh, slips under the tongue, and there it comes into contact with the sublingual membranes above and below. And the hope is that we'll be able to see a, a rapid onset of action. Uh, we hope that because we're able to give a lot less active drug, that they could lead to a shorter duration but we don't know yet. So we've done a lot of work with different formulations and we've done those in animal models. And uh, those are great for comparing different prototypes so we can improve and enhance uh, the performance. But the data doesn't necessarily translate one-to-one -one from, you know, from uh, a pig model to right. say, to a human. So until we see this in man, we won't know exactly how fast it is or, or exactly how long it lasts. But right. that's our hope is to improve the experience and make it more scalable. Okay. So the main idea is basically we're, we're cutting off that initial hour maybe where you're waiting for the psychedelics to kick in. And that obviously is good for many people because not everyone has hours to sit around and wait for these things to happen. It allows you to get more patients going into clinics. Um, is there any risk of, I, I'm sure this, the studies haven't been done yet, but if you're bypassing the GI tract, is it possible that maybe the GI tract actually like plays an important role in the effects of these drugs, or do you think that maybe that's not something to be so concerned about? Well, obviously we have to look at those kind of elements and you know, psilocybin is a prodrug. Uh, it gets uh, dephosphorylated into psilocin, uh, but in the, in the mouth, in the buccal cavity, you have uh, saliva and saliva contains alkaline phosphatase. So it's an enzyme that you know, will do that. Uh, we, also, we also know from studies on a lot of different films too, that um, there is some element of active transport across the membrane. And that's tough to measure in, in static animal models as well. So we're not concerned, you know, when you give psilocybin in many different formats, IM, IV, it's pretty difficult to measure psilocybin in the bloodstream. It's almost instantly psilocin. I see. Um, so we're not worried about that conversion, though. Gotcha. Okay. And, um, you know, when, these, when this actually, you know, gets approved, you see this still, even though it's shorter acting, this still probably gets done in clinics. Is that correct? Yes, I think so. Uh, you know, we've seen with Spravato uh, there with the REMS program, there's a need for a two-hour observation period. Um, there'll be a period of time here when the patient is having their experience, their psychedelic experience, probably should be supervised. And certainly what it, certainly today, as we're learning about these molecules, we fully expect this to be an in-clinic uh, uh, supervised model. Yeah. And do you see, obviously this is very early, but do you see Cybin just partnering with existing clinics or do you think Cybin might ever open up its own clinics? Yeah, so we're already thinking well ahead. Uh, you know, you, you start your clinical study design thinking about the actual practical delivery of care once you're approved and you work backwards from there. So we're already uh, beginning to work on partnerships with large networks of clinics, for depression clinics and for addictive clinics. We think there's a whole infrastructure out there that could adapt itself, especially if we're looking at treatments that are much shorter in, in, in duration. Uh, so these partnerships, and we'll be announcing them more specifically uh, soon, um, will help us form centers of excellence, they'll help us uh, train therapists, they'll help us learn from uh, those caregivers that provide care delivery for depression today or addiction today, and build those learnings as practical learnings back into our clinical studies as well. So it's a bit of a two-way street. They're learning mm -hmm. from us and we're learning from them. That makes sense. Um, so when it comes to psilocybin specifically, one of the things that we're seeing in addition to all this pharma research is waves of decriminalization and legalization happening, right? So in Oregon, it's currently decriminalized. There was just a bill that was passed by the California Senate just yesterday, actually, that would potentially legalize or decriminalize rather psilocybin and other hallucinogens. Um, from where you're sitting, do you see this sort of thing as like a threat to your business model or is it a good thing because it brings more awareness? Like wh where do you stand on the decriminalization and legalization issue? Yeah, like I don't think you can be developing these molecules as therapeutics and not be fully supportive of all of those decriminalization activities. It's fantastic. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a sign that the war on drugs just didn't work. Yeah. And look, we've got 5% of the world's population and 25% of the world's prisoners, generally because of nonviolent drug crime. Sure. And uh, so let's stop putting people in jail for carrying substances that we've deemed to be illegal. Uh, so let, let me just get that out, out of the way. I, th I think, but I do, exactly. think it, I do think it is, though, more of a criminal justice matter than a pharmaceutical one. You know, at the end of the day, 
um, if somebody wants to grow a mushroom in their backyard and, and take that into safety of their own home, then power, power be to them. You know, but for most people, that's not going to be the case. You know, I live in Massachusetts. Um, I could grow cannabis in my house. I don't. You know, I could brew my own beer. Right? No. Um, and I think for a lot of people, um, especially given the nature of these treatments and the way people are dissociated from reality a little bit, they're probably going to want to be in a controlled environment, a safe clinical environment, and have a molecule that is synthesized and has, is consistent and safe. Makes sense. Well, it's good to hear that you're in support of the uh, decriminalization efforts. You know, some of the uh, other CEOs of these companies have not been so, you know, forthright in their support. So it's nice to see that uh, you are. what, one last thing on the on psilocybin specifically before we start talking about the tryptamine program. So we've seen some other companies like Compass Pathways issue these sort of sweeping patents about psilocybin. They're going after everything from the production of psilocybin, the synthesis of it, to uh, very basic psychedelic therapeutic protocols like the therapist's taking you to a room with soft furniture and like soothing music. Does this stuff worry you at all? Do you, um, or do you think that these, you know, ultimately won't hold up and won't really pose a challenge to any other competitors? Yeah, look, I, I, I see what they're doing. And I think, you know, um, it, it's a challenging situation when you have uh, lots of prior art, you know, and lots of data that's already out there. And yeah. they, they're a public company and they have a lot of investors to raise all the money. They need to protect their investments. Um, at the end of the day, many of those claims just won't hold up. Um, but look, the patent system does work. It, it's, it's meant to reward innovation, right, and reward investment. So if there's true innovation and, is there, and then there isn't prior art, then their patents will hold. And, and, and as we've seen already, some of them haven't. Uh, but the good ones will and the bad ones just won't. And I think they've said recently that they're not looking to necessarily enforce all of those patents. So, uh, sure. We'll see. Yeah, I, I generally agree with you. It doesn't seem like these things will hold up, but it certainly does make for good uh, hysterical headlines about, you know, big it's corporations not good coming PR, in. No, I agree. <laughs> it's definitely not big good PR. But, um, you know, on, on the subject of true innovation, uh, let's talk about this deuterated tryptamine program that Cybin has. So for, for the uninitiated, uh, what is a tryptamine? What is deuteration? And what is a deuterated tryptamine? And why are they so exciting? Okay. Okay. So um, psilocybin is a tryptamine. Uh, DMT is a tryptamine. So these molecules are slightly different, but they work on the same range of, of receptors, uh, 5-HT receptors, serotonin receptors, in, different, in slightly different ways. There are different nuances between them. Um, but to use psilocybin and DMT as examples, though, psilocybin is quite long-acting, as we talked about. An oral dose can last for four to six hours. DMT, maybe 15 minutes. Uh, in a bit of a rocket ride. Right. And uh, that, that may be shorter and more convenient, but that oh, spike causes you know, vomiting and nausea and not great side effects. So how do you create an optimal treatment that uh, is long enough to have a beneficial therapeutic effect, uh, but short enough to not require massive amounts of infrastructure that, that, may, that means patient access is limited. So it's hard to take the long acting treatments and make them shorter. Um, just chemically hard to do that. But what we're doing is taking these short-acting tryptamines, say like DMT, and we're making them last longer in the body. Mm-hmm. And so if, as, you, as you stretch out the duration of these treatments, that spike comes down and you have a much smoother curve. And we're doing, we're doing that through deuteration. Now, deuterium is heavy hydrogen. It's basically a hydrogen atom that's got an extra neutron in it. It's twice the molecular weight. Uh, so when you selectively switch out hydrogen atoms on these tryptamines, they become heavier and they form these carbon deuterium bonds instead of carbon hydrogen bonds, which are much stronger. And they resist the breakdown uh, in the body by monoamine oxidase. So that's the main mechanism of breakdown of these tryptamines is the enzyme monoamine oxidase. If you can block that or slow its effect, then you can stretch out the duration of, of these molecules. And as there are lots of different um, hydrogen positions on the molecule, we can be selective about which ones we substitute, and therefore we can have quite a lot of flexibility over the duration. Okay. That, that is a good overview. Um, I'm sure that will send many people down a Wikipedia rabbit hole trying to understand, <laughs> trying to understand a little bit more. I'm wrong about it all. But 
<laughs> no, it, it's from, from the little I know, that sounds like a pretty accurate description to me. Um, and so you're developing, I believe, two different deuterated tryptamines, correct? One of them is targeted at uh, alcohol use disorder, and the other one is uh, treatment-resistant psychiatric disorders, which I imagine is just kind of an umbrella term for whatever you know, maybe you realize that it works best for. Um, so what question is, how do you decide that, you know, alcohol use disorder is the right indication to go after for a specific drug? Is it kind of a trial and error thing? Or is there some way that by looking at, you know, the pathways in the brain and the shape of this molecule, you have an idea that maybe this particular deuterated tryptamine will work better for alcohol use disorder than maybe depression or something? Like, how does that process work? I'm really glad you asked that question, actually, because we see a lot of uh, companies just throwing out indications, and I suspect we're not that much thought behind it. This was a long process for us. We didn't announce the indication for quite a while. Mm -hmm. And yes, you're right. You're starting with the chemistry of the underlying parent molecule. You're looking at the mode of action, the, the, the receptors that it's targeting relative to other receptors and what the effect might be. Any data that's out there uh, from academic studies, we're looking at uh, the, the potential market, the population affected. Uh, we're, we're looking at the potential growth rate of it. We're looking at what clinical endpoints can we actually identify? Which clinical endpoints will EMA and FDA actually accept uh, in a study? No point developing something and showing an effect if they don't care about it. So it's a, quite a big, long integrated process. And we ended up with alcohol use disorder as our first target indication. I have every hope that that molecule, based upon what I know about it, will also work in maybe tobacco use disorder and opioid sure. use as well. So it's got quite a long life cycle behind it. What's What's interesting about alcohol use disorder is that um, at least when you look at sort of the the big name trials coming out of these research companies, I haven't. Maybe I'm wrong about this, but I haven't seen a trial of psilocybin for alcohol use disorder. So there must be something different about this molecule. Like maybe it's not really comparable to psilocybin. Is that maybe a fair guess? Yeah, I, I, can't, I can't disclose the molecule, unfortunately, just sure. yet. We're still in our original patent stages. But yes, uh, that indication and the others behind it uh, yeah. certainly centered around data that we have on, on the parent molecule. Um, gotcha. Yeah, look, I mean, if, if we can make an impact in, in this area, it's an area that's so underserved. Absolutely. Alco alcohol is the third largest uh, preventable cause of death globally, uh, it, but it's hidden. We don't really challenge it or tackle it. And, right. uh, you know, most treatments are either ineffective or they're, or they're very inconvenient uh, to use. So we think there's tremendous upside from this. That makes sense. Yeah, I mean, it, it absolutely, it's kind of one of the uh, socially acceptable things to have, right? You, you, you're allowed to have a problem with alcohol abuse generally, which is very sad, but yeah. it's true. And it definitely destroys a lot of people's lives. Uh, I've definitely had personal experiences with, you know, friends and family that have uh, sort of fallen victim to that sort of stuff. So I definitely think that this is a good area to be researching. Um, on the deuterated tryptamine, so sort of the, the primary benefit of these over something like psilocybin is that they're shorter acting, maybe they're maybe a little bit more customizable, and um, maybe they have slightly less hallucinogenic effects. Is that also something that is maybe fair to guess? I think I've yeah. seen some people speculate on that. Yeah, that's all good questions. And um, of course, what we've done here is we tried to build a platform where we have a lot of flexibility around the level of deuteration and the, and, and the, and the, dura the duration of effect of these molecules. Because at the end of the day, we don't know what is optimal yet. Right. So, but we do know, say, that ketamine is pretty effective in some patients in certain conditions at 40 minutes or so. Sure. Plenty of people have had benefits from DMT 15 or 20 minutes. Or mm -hmm. so. Um, so it's, 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 it's safe to think that you're likely to see a, a meaningful benefit at that 45 minutes an hour. We'll see how it works out. And we have quite a lot of ability sure. to change that duration, not just the duration, but also through drug delivery, how you deliver the drug into the bloodstream. Mm -hmm. um, we don't know what the durability of effect will be. Does it mean if you don't have a four hour session or a six hour session that the effects don't last six months, they only last two months? We don't know. Um, right. But our speculation from the outset and the business model from the outset is that uh, if we can get, um, if we can reduce the burden on the health system, reduce the number of therapists needed, reduce the amount of infrastructure needed and the number of observers, we can get more people into the system. And if they have to come back a little more frequently, that's probably okay. 
Sure, uh, sure. Folks are going to be more willing to give up an hour of their day, you know, than, than four or six hours of, of their day. And we just want to make these as accessible as we can. Absolutely. So obviously the, the shorter trip time is one thing. And I, I know you can't disclose anything specific about what you're working on, but is there anything um, about like less hallucinogenic effects that some of these, you know, second generation psychedelics may have? Like, is it possible to reduce the hallucinogenic effect, do you think? And is that is that a desirable thing for probably, a, there's, I'm sure there's a group of people out there that are maybe interested in psychedelics, but don't like the idea of, you know, hallucinating for lack of a better word. Yeah. Yeah. So look, the, we're, we're at the stage right now where we're doing large animal toxicology work so it hasn't gone into man yet so cyp 003 will go into man maybe right around the end of this year phase one phase one okay. so we don't know what the hallucinogenic effects are i'm not convinced yet that you don't need it i, I you know from yeah. the work that's been done at um, imperial college from the fmri work this temporary neuroplasticity that is uh, thought to happen maybe that is the psychedelic effect you know maybe right. Those parts of the brain talking to each other that don't normally talk to each other, that's the brain rewiring itself, becoming more receptive to therapy, uh, able to create new memories, uh, to overcome trauma. If you remove all of that, assuming they're the same thing, is there a benefit? I'm not sure we really know that yet. Yeah, I don't, I don't think anyone knows, but it certainly is something interesting to think about. Um, so you mentioned a little bit about the timeline. W so when do you think, like, best case scenario, one of these, you know, second generation deuterotryptamines might hit the market? We're, yeah, so I we're think talking to years, obviously. Yeah, we but, are. I mean, I, of course, MAPS is, MAPS is well ahead with their MDMA. It looks like they could be on the market maybe 2023 if, if everything goes smoothly through their, uh, their approval process. That would be great to see the market start to be formed. We think uh, if everything goes smoothly for us and for Compass with psilocybin, we could be there around 2025 or so. These are very yeah, vague yeah. timelines because you don't know, you know exactly how sure. to um, sure. I, I would say that these deuterated tryptamines are a year or so behind that. So probably 26 or 27 before we see these okay. on the market. But that gives us time to start to build infrastructure, to train therapists, to educate the population to get rid of some of the stigma maybe so you know it's it's going to be a bit of an iterative process absolutely um and one last question on the tryptamines i know you're in addition to creating these cool new molecules you are also innovating on the delivery mechanism so uh, i think i read something about an inhalation method and then also something called uh ODT, is that just another word for sublingual or is that something different yeah so odt is already disintegrating tablet um, and there are lots of these different uh, technologies around, but this particular one from Catalant uh, is lyophilized, uses freeze-drying. And so that, that particular approach to making these tablets fits really well with the molecule. I wish I could tell you what it was, but it, it, sure, sure. the properties of the molecule and the, and the freeze-drying work well together uh, to form a more stable product. So we selected that quite carefully. It should be slightly faster onset of action as well, but that wasn't the main goal. It's a pretty short-acting tryptamine anyway. Okay. Um, for inhalation, we're combining that and some other formulations too for 004. Uh, this is a molecule that's not already bioavailable at all. Uh, so we've got to find some other mechanism to get it into the bloodstream. And we think inhalation could be a really novel approach in that you could have metered dosing. You know, maybe one puff or two puffs. You, know, you can say, I want a bit more, so you can take two puffs or three puffs. Right. And depending on how we, 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 we control the device. Um, could give quite a lot of control over, over dosing. And it might enable us to give lower doses, more chronic doses. So a few unknowns yet, uh, but smart way, I think, of getting these, um, these molecules into the bloodstream. Yeah, I especially like that idea of you have this molecule that is not bioavailable, and so you've figured out a new way to potentially deliver it in a way that it actually does something. So that's, that's very cool. Um, let's talk about one of the coolest things that you guys are working on that I, I don't think I've seen any other company even start to talk about this sort of thing, and that's, that's uh, your partnership with Kernel, which is the company that makes a very cool sci-fi-looking uh, brain helmet, brain imaging device, uh, which I guess in my you know, non-scientific understanding sort of allows you to get similar types of images that you might out of an MRI machine, but without actually sitting in a tube for, you know, hours. Um, so can you maybe talk a little bit about that kernel partnership and what exactly is being done with it and what you plan to do with it and what you hope to, you know, accomplish by using this technology? Yeah. So uh, can you imagine that lying in an fMRI tube with 120 decibels around your head? It's 
It sounds like a nightmare. Yeah. I, yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. No, yeah. I, 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 you know, kudos to all those people that did those fMRI studies, because when you just think about it that way, um, there's a lot of difficulty in getting those studies done. So that, yeah. that is great work. Um, but, you know, those devices, those fMRI machines or EEG machines, MEG machines, they are um, like room sized, cost millions of dollars. And you need someone with a PhD to run those, those things as well. They're very expensive. Mm -hmm. And they're really difficult to get patient, patients access to. So, and, and, that, and that creates a challenge. How do you create large data sets that are really useful if you can't get patients in on a regular basis? Sure. And that's the real genius of, of the kernel flow device. Uh, the technology existed before, uh, but the kernel team has done a phenomenal job of not only miniaturizing it down into a wearable, but they also uh, adapted the lasers so they're using pulse light instead of wave light. And they're pulsing uh, photons into the cranium at 200 times a second and over a full head coverage. So they're getting real-time hemodynamic changes uh, that they can measure across the whole, the, the whole head. A thousand channels coming off of this thing of data. They had to create new chips to, to make it possible. So the hope is that we can uh, pick up similar hemodynamic changes, which are analogous to neural activity uh, in, in the cranium, um, like you see under fMRI. And if we can do that, then we can do it on a much more longitudinal basis. So what's happening there in the, in, in the same patient before, during, and after uh, psychedelic treatment? Can we see that neuroplasticity? How long does it last? Mm -hmm. um, does it last minutes? Does it last days, you know, hours? Um, can we directly correlate it to the sort of afterglow, after effect uh, that, that is occurring? Lots of lots of questions. Um, and then when you think about a lot of studies in depression and other psychiatric disorders, they use qu qualitative measures, right? Mm -hmm. uh, how do you feel today? You know, and, and there's sort of a 10, you know, a 10 level uh, scale that patients sort of subjectively respond to. What if we can get more quantitative data that directly correlates to someone's condition? Mm -hmm. So then you can take uh, maybe uh, lower doses of psychedelics where you're not necessarily getting a perceptive, a perceptual effect, a sort of a sub-perceptual, sub-hallucinogenic effect. Is there still something happening there? Can we measure it? And if you could do that uh, and see some kind of neurological activity happening, then maybe you can develop treatments in the future for, for you know, PTSD or maybe ADHD, um, right. but do it in a way where doses could be taken at home, uh, where you don't have to have 3,000 people in a study because your effect size is really small. Uh, lots and lots of open questions. So gotcha. I'll, I'll say it's, it's cool science right now, and it's all about learning more, and it's really about setting up our R&D for the future, I mean, beyond the second generation. You've got to keep planning ahead, and we're learning this stuff in parallel. We just announced this week our first kernel flow study. So we're going to be studying uh, the device using ketamine, and... Um, and mostly because we know a lot about ketamine, it's, you know, it's pretty predictable, it's approved for use, uh, and patients are sedated, which in the beginning when we're trying to understand the device and you know, ergonomics and all that stuff, it's, it's, it's kind of helpful. So yeah, I'm excited about it. I'm, I'm hoping we'll have data before the end of the year out of that study to see, see what we can see. So just out of curiosity, um, I mean, <clears throat> the study sounds very interesting, but you, you're not a company that is really focused on ketamine, right? So is this more just an, an experimental thing? Let's see what we learn. It doesn't, is there a way that it does maybe impact your psilocybin or deuterated tryptamine studies? Um, yeah, so the first thing we need to do is learn more about the device itself. Okay. And using ketamine is more of a known entity. Um, it's, it's approved, it's accessible, uh, and patients are more sedated. So this isn't about ketamine at all. Uh, it's just about learning about a device. And then we'll incorporate the device once we know more about it into our other studies later. I see. So do you see kernel playing a part in the upcoming trial of the psilocybin? Or do you think maybe that you're just going to be running maybe separate studies on the kernel on the side? I think a parallel path to start with. Uh, what we don't want to do at the beginning here is add another variable into the study. You know, let's, let's focus on the psilocybin. I, I, that, getting that to market uh, efficiently is, is, is really important. Um, but as I said, the kernel device is about the future beyond that. And if we can learn more about it, and then we, once we know more about the device and what it demonstrates to us, then we can use it as a measure in our studies in the future. 
<clears throat> yeah, gotcha. That that totally makes sense. I mean, I'm a data scientist that works for a hedge fund by trade, so I know that like there's just just gathering the data itself is kind of like ninety percent of the work. So it, even if you don't necessarily know what studies are going to be done yet, gathering good quality data is super important. And if you have the ability to do that cheaply and you know on a wide scale, that obviously you know sets you up for big wins down the down the road, even if you don't necessarily know. Um, exactly how you're going to use the data yet. So that that's very cool. I couldn't um, have said it better. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> no, I love it. And honestly, just looking at the pictures of that device, I, it makes me want to just put one on and see what see what happens. <laughs> um, yeah, I'd imagine that uh, those might become. Is the partnership with Kernel is that exclusive in any way, or can other psychedelic companies start? Yeah, um, we've been. Brian that? Johnson, who's the founder there, um, has a, you know I think a personal fascination with this chemistry, and really is working working hard with us on it. So um, you know we're just focused on on getting this partnership up and running, and yeah. uh, the more that we learn about it, then you know the more useful that data will be to us and to others. So right. Cool. Um, so maybe let's just talk about some general things with Cybin, uh, maybe more from the investment side. So what do you, a lot of my viewers are people that are very interested in investing in, you know, these psychedelic companies. So what, what is probably the next big catalyst or, um, you know, event that investors should maybe look out for when it comes to Cybin? Yeah, thanks for asking that. We have a few things coming up this year. Uh, we just got IRB approval to start our phase two study for depression for the sublingual film of psilocybin. So that's certainly something that will happen this year, the initiation of that, and and hopefully some early data from the phase 2A portion uh, this year. Um, for CYB003, uh, we expect to be first in man right around the end of the year. And at that point, we should have some preclinical data to, to share as well. And uh, we've already passed that proof of concept stage preclinically, where we've shown we can uh, alter the PK, uh, the pharmacokinetic profile of those molecules without impacting receptor binding. So that's really great. Um, we will just be kicking off the kernel study. So we'll have data from that. So before the end of the year, we're going to be launching our therapist's uh, training program. Uh, other, and we'll, We're also going to be working on some other sort of non-core, non-registration studies. Uh, so uh, we'll announce those shortly, but studies... Uh, that are more on a compassionate use basis, end of life, or, or uh, depressed uh, healthcare uh, workers, those kinds of studies that we'll share more data, uh, data on in the future. But just the studies that are just the right thing to do, frankly. Yeah. Um, and then we are um, we're working on a US uh, listing, uh, a listing on a US tier one exchange. We're having those discussions with the exchanges now. I uh, can't really go into much detail that exchanges don't like that. We do that. Sure. But, so hopefully in the coming weeks, we'll have some news uh, around that as well. Cool. Yeah, that was actually a question I was going to ask. A lot of people on uh, you know, the Reddit and Discord communities are very interested in when these companies uh, uplist to the big exchanges. Um, what do you think... When you look at some of these other companies like Mind Medicine and Compass Pathways, uh, a lot of these guys are trading at market caps in excess of a billion dollars. And um, it, when I look at Cybin and everything that it has going for it, it seems like Cybin should be kind of comparable to these companies, but you see it trading at a smaller market cap. Do you think the market is like missing something or maybe undervaluing Cybin in any way? Oh, I definitely think they're undervaluing the Cybin. Of course, yeah. I'd that. Yeah, of uh, but look, I mean, yes, when you look at our programs uh, and you look at our IP and you look at the team, that we have, which is phenomenal, uh, and all the different diversity in the portfolio, different markets we're going to, we're going to be attacking. Yeah, I think we're you know, massively undervalued. And we have analyst coverage, a lot more analyst coverage than some of our peers, actually, mm -hmm. that have targets out there at you know, sort of $10, $11 or so. Or so so yeah. lots of potential upside that they see. Um, I do think we have a couple of factors or maybe three factors that put us where we are. One is First mover advantage, so Compass and MyMed were just out there first. Uh, sure. Two, we're on the Neo Exchange, so less liquidity. And yeah. I've done changes. We moved to a US uh, listing. Um, and, and three, we, we really spent a lot of effort in the beginning when we were doing our last couple of financing rounds, attracting um, blue chip biotech funds, uh, institutional investors in, into the book. Uh, 90 to 95% of uh, those last two rounds were those kind of funds. And they've done their diligence, but they're also trading less. They're long holders. There's right. less liquidity as a result. So we do see less volatility in the stock than maybe some others. Um, but until I think we get up onto a major exchange, we're going to be and get more retail investors into the into the uh, the stock. Then we kind of are where we are until we see that happen. I think. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, in some ways, as as much as you know, everyone wants valuations to be as high as possible. I, I kind of appreciate the fact that you have more institutional holders in a less volatile stock because uh, you know you see some of these companies that are sort of heavily promoting their stock, and most of their holders are retail investors. And I think in the long run, that sort of thing kind of leads to you know much more volatile, bubbly type behavior, and that's probably bad for the industry as a whole. So I think companies like yours and Fieldtrip Health. I interviewed the CEO of him a couple of weeks ago that are really just not really paying attention to the noise and focus on building a yeah. fundamental business. That's that's probably what we need as an industry, you know, in the long run. So I, I yeah, think look, I mean, drug development is long and it's expensive, right? Yeah. So we know we're going to have to keep uh, raising capital over time. We want to keep doing that in a steady way at higher valuations each time. And that gets right. much harder to do because stocks all over the place. And so, yeah, slow and steady wins the race, for sure. Absolutely. Um, one question about the psychedelic industry I have is why why is so much of this research being done by small startup companies like Cybin? Like, why don't we see Johnson and Johnson running a psilocybin study? Is there something just about smaller companies being more innovative? Is that really it at its core? Uh, I think it's a couple of things. You know, I think in general, big farmers rotated out of psychiatry. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've been looking to hire a chief medical officer. And we've met a bunch of good candidates and many of them are now in CNS or something else because Mm. the big companies they were working at don't have psychiatry programs anymore. Uh, There hasn't been any major innovation in psychiatry for decades. So that's a part of it that they've kind of looked away from the space, but these things are cyclical. They tend to come back. Um, Another thing I think is, um, uh, that you take J and J that you mentioned. It's hard for the CEO of J and J to get up and start talking about psychedelics, even as ketamine, and putting it front and center of their message. It's been something that's been difficult for them to do. So that's always going to be holding them back. Also, also the last thing I'll say is, big pharma has big pockets, right? So uh, for them, there's the IP space is playing out here. Lots and lots of filings over the last couple of years. As we look forward to the next year or two. We're going to see where those that IP and those patents fall out. Uh, at the same time, it's going to coordinate, coincide with data, clinical data coming out from well-controlled studies. Then big pharma can just take their pick at that point. Why gamble now that from one of 50 right. companies, sit and wait, and then write a bigger check? They can just buy the winner. So do you see that as a potential exit point for Simon getting acquired by one of these large pharma companies? Is that you kind know, of how it just works? It, it's not top of our list. You know, we're, yeah. we're, we're putting the plan together for the long haul and building a real pharma company and, and all of the tools we need, at least in North America, to commercialize ourselves. In Europe and other markets, we may well partner just because of the complexity of structure there. Um, but look, as with any public company, we have a duty uh, to do the best thing for our shareholders. And, and if that, that opportunity came along and we thought it could enhance our drug programs and bring more of them or to market or to market faster, then we'd have to take that seriously. Makes sense. Um, so I think I just have one more question, actually, and then you know we can leave the listeners with some message at the end, I guess. But uh, you know, it seems like in the past 12, 24 months, we've seen sort of this explosion of like psychedelic drug research companies. And I kind of get the feeling that maybe the space is a little crowded at this point, and most of the new entrants are not bringing a lot to the table. Do you think that that is like a correct assessment of the psychedelic industry now, like maybe a little bit overcrowded, at least in the drug development space? And if so, where do you think the business opportunities in the psychedelic space at large are? I'm not surprised that we're seeing uh, a lot of smaller companies starting up. Yeah. When you look back at pharma R&D overall, that's really how it works. Big pharma has become less and less innovative mm-hmm. and focused, uh, relied more and more on picking up opportunities from buying smaller companies uh, that, that can move faster. So it's kind of a natural evolution. Um, I think we're about to enter a kind of a second wave of capital. Yeah, the mm-hmm. first wave was, was really led by Compass coming in. And that, and when Compass went public uh, at the end of last summer, that led to a whole influx of capital. A bunch of companies got funded, including Cybin at that point. Yes. Uh, now we're seeing MindMed uh, you know, uh, cross to a US exchange. Uh, we, we're going to see a tie go public. You know, Cybin's on that list and some others. I think there's going to be another wave of capital coming into the space. And then you're going to have a small group of companies with much bigger balance sheets. And they can pull away from the pack. There just won't be enough capital to fund all those small companies, but there might be a wave of consolidation and M&A opportunities for companies like Cybin and all capitalized in the next 12, 18 months. Absolutely. Um, well, I think 
I think that's all the questions that I have for you, Doug. Is there anything that you want to maybe, any questions I should have asked or anything that you want to leave the listeners with? Look, I think that was great. Thanks so much for the interest yeah. in Spiven. Uh, thanks for the opportunity to tell the story. Uh, you Absolutely. Know, when we get this kind, of, this kind of interest and appreciate all the time that you took. And I look forward to coming back and answering questions maybe in the future. Yeah, you know, when Sybin's uh, trading at a $100 billion market cap, and as it will, we'll, we'll have, a, have another, another chat. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, that's the date. We can keep that one. Okay. Sounds good. All right, Doug. Well, thank you so much for your time. You have a good day. Thank you very much. Take care. All right. Bye. All right. So that was the interview. I hope everyone enjoyed it. I'm going to give a couple thoughts in a second. I just want to really quickly say thank you to Doug and the rest of the Sybin team for being generous with their time. The fact that the CEOs of these psychedelic companies are willing to, you know, go on a YouTube channel and just answer a bunch of questions to the from the investment community, I think is uh, just really cool and not something that you see every day. So I just, uh, I think it's really cool. And I just want to say thank you to Doug and um, I'm hoping to be able to do a lot more videos like this in the future. So stay tuned, send me DMs with, uh, the companies that you want me to interview and I'll try my best to make it happen. All right. So let's talk about the interview. So there's one regret that I have that I, I a question that I should have pushed Doug on that I didn't. So I asked Doug about decriminalization, legalization, measure 109, and how that might affect Sybin's business. And first of all, Doug gave a very good answer in support of decriminalization. He, was, he staunchly came out and said, I support and Sybin supports decriminalization efforts, which is not something that you can say for the, other, for the CEOs of some of these other companies. Um, we've seen some media about many psychedelic capitalists being anti-even decriminalization, which I think is like really sad and kind of messed up. So I'm happy that Doug gave the positive answer on decriminalization, but he did not because I did not ask him specifically and I did not push him on this, he did not comment on whether or not things like Organ Measure 109, which is the bill that allows therapists in Oregon to use psilocybin as part of their treatment, he did not comment on whether that, which is a separate thing from decriminalization, he did not comment on whether that, bills like that, are a threat to the psilocybin business. And um, I think the truth is that they are at least a little bit of a threat. If you are a therapist and you are able to just get generic mushrooms and give them to a patient during therapy, those generic mushrooms are probably going to cost a lot less than something from Cybin or any other pharmaceutical company, which had to spend, you know, millions on FDA trials and drug approval. And also that therapist, I believe under the Oregon Measure 109 guidelines, that therapist doesn't have to be a doctor. They can just be a regular therapist. Whereas to prescribe a prescription medication, you need to be a doctor or at least have like a doctor on site at your clinic or something. So these laws like Oregon Measure 109, which by the way, they currently only exist in Oregon, but they are being proposed and making their way through the assemblies of many other states in the US. So I think within a year, we will see other states that have Oregon Measure 109-like legislation. These types of laws, I do think pose a, do pose a bit of a threat to these companies. However, I will say in Sybin's defense, I think a company like Sybin is more robust or immune to the attacks from these type of laws than a company like Compass Pathways, for example, because Compass Pathways is just providing generic synthetic psilocybin that acts basically exactly the same way that the psilocybin from a mushroom might. Whereas Sybin, they at least have this novel delivery mechanism, which cuts, you know, maybe an hour off of the trip time. And also, um, yeah, so they, they at least have like some novel technology that, you know, makes the drug more convenient. And so many people may still seek out the Cybin treatment rather than the Measure 109 treatment. Now, of course, I'm not saying that like the existence of Organ 109 or the existence of Organ Measure 109 means that any of these companies' businesses are destroyed. I'm just saying it's like potentially, it's, it's at the very least a competitor or someone who's like maybe going to be taking market share. Um, anyway, that's a question that I wish I should have asked Doug. And, you know, I think if I had asked him and he had answered, I think he would have likely said that it's at least a small threat. That's my guess, of course. Um, but I don't think that necessarily changes the fundamental story of a company like Cybin or Compass Pathways. Okay, so another thing that I thought was interesting was that Doug mentioned that the, one of the primary challenges in psychedelic drug development is scaling up the clinical resources necessary, not only for the clinical trials, but also for the administration of these substances once they are approved by the FDA. Now notice, 
He says clinical resources. Um, he did not say telehealth. And when I talked to Ronan Levy of Field Trip Health, who of course he's biased because he runs a company that operates clinics, he also expressed skepticism that these drugs will be allowed to be given under just simple tele-supervision by the FDA. Now, of course, ultimately this comes down to whether or not the FDA mandates that these drugs be consumed in the physical presence of you know, some sort of provider or not. But we've now seen two CEOs on my channel say that they don't believe in this telehealth model that, you know, MindMed is going after. So, you know, the, uh, <laughs> the, w the weight of opinions is kind of like tipping not in favor of MindMed here. And I think it's just kind of an interesting, interesting thing to watch. Um, and you would think that Sybin, Sybin is not a company that is planning to operate clinics themselves. So you would think that they would be very in favor of this telehealth thing. But it doesn't sound like he's confident that telehealth is going to be allowed by the FDA when it comes to, you know, tripping under the supervision of a therapist over telehealth. So, yeah, um, I think maybe what that means for investors is that businesses that are operating clinics might be something to get into. Uh, so do your research, figure out what companies are running the clinics, hint, Field Trip Health, and a couple others, and uh, maybe consider adding some of those to your portfolio Okay. He also touches on with a deuterated tryptamines. He talks about how they may have a shorter trip time and than psilocybin, for example, but how that shorter trip time may correlate with a shorter treatment effectiveness time. So maybe the psilocybin's trip time is like six hours, but it cures you of your depression for a year. Whereas one of these deuterated tryptamines, maybe the trip time is only one hour but it only cures you of your depression for three or four months. And he sort of makes the case that people would rather go to a clinic for one hour every three months than for a whole day once a year, just because it's very hard to get a whole day off, especially if you're, you know, in a family or something. So his suggestion is that these may be things that are consumed, you know, every three months, every four months. And what he didn't really say, but the subtext is that this is really good from a business perspective because this is recurring revenue. Um, all businesses try to achieve recurring revenue. You don't want to, you want to be able to sell to the same customer many times. And uh, potentially, obviously it's still very early and we haven't even done human trials yet, but uh, potentially these molecules from Cybin might, not only do a good job of curing patients in a very time convenient way, but also might provide a nice recurring revenue stream to Sybin. Okay, another thing, um, he, he mentions that I think their psilocybin program probably won't be approved till like 2025 and that the deuterated tryptamines may be closer to 2027. And I just want to emphasize like how long this is. You know, if you think about it, if you're in the US, it's like we're going to have another presidential election before their, even their psilocybin is approved. And you just got to think about how long that is, like how much stuff happened in the last four years from 2016 to 2020, how much crazy stuff is going to happen in the next four years. Um, there will be a new president, potentially, a new head of the FDA that might have very different views on psychedelics, maybe for the good, maybe for the bad. Um, and I think there's sort of two things here. One is that this is, even in the best case scenario, such a long ways away that we should probably like step back and ignore some of the day-to-day -day noise that comes with some of these companies. And also that we should just realize that lots of things could change for the worse and that these companies are risky. As excited as we are about the future of psychedelics, so much can happen in the next four years that could totally throw any of these companies off their trajectory. It could even throw the whole sector off their trajectory. Um, that's just me sort of being, you know, a little bit morbid, but it's the truth. You know, you got to look at the downside too. And uh, one of the fundamental laws of like finance is that as time increases, volatility increases. So, you know, be aware. And that for, for that exact reason, that's why even though I'm super bullish on the psychedelic sector, I still have a very small percentage of my total net worth invested in psychedelic companies. It's like less than 5%. All right. Um, the last thing is that he mentions doing these like side studies where they, they're doing studies that are not necessarily part of their FDA um, trial pipeline, but they're just running these studies kind of on the side on maybe different subpopulations, on maybe different diseases. And uh, I was kind of thinking like, wh what's the, why do that? Like, what's the real benefit of that? It costs money to do that. So, you know, it's not something that you just do to be nice. Well, 
My speculation is, and I should have just asked him this, but I didn't think about it until after the interview was done, was that once a drug is approved by the FDA, it can generally be prescribed off-label by doctors for other indications. So if they get their psilocybin approved for major depressive disorder, a doctor can then take that drug and prescribe it for some other disorder besides major depressive disorder. But the doctors generally won't do that unless there's at least some evidence suggesting that the drug works for that disorder. So by performing these side studies, Cybin can sort of build up a body of literature that's like, look, we don't our, our psilocybin isn't approved specifically by the FDA for this d- disease or this illness, but we have done studies that show that it like kind of does work well for that illness. So hint, hint, like if you want to prescribe it off label for that, you know, here's at least a couple studies that suggest that maybe you could do that. And I think that's good. These, these sorts of studies help, um, you know, potentially expand the revenue base because, you know, it can kind of encourage doctors to do a little off label prescribing, um, and get hit a much wider, um, body of patients than they would be able to do otherwise. So I, that's sort of the subtext that I read into that. Although, of course, you know, I don't know. We didn't hear it from Doug himself. This is just me speculating. All right. So I think that's all I got for the post-interview breakdown. Um, reminder, like and subscribe to the YouTube channel. Leave a review on uh, Apple Podcasts. Follow me on Spotify. I'm on Twitter at The Real Brom. Uh, like I mentioned at the beginning of the video, I'm going to try and do maybe like some live reactions to bits of media about the psychedelic landscape. So if you see a news story that you want my take on, or you see like a, another YouTube video talking about psychedelics that you think is interesting or funny or weird, and you want my take on it, you know, leave, leave it on. Uh, with me in the comments here or like shoot me a dm on twitter or reddit or whatever um and i will try my best to get to it when i do this like live reaction stream which i'm guessing i'm probably gonna do next friday um and of course i do have more interviews coming up i have an interview scheduled with the ceo of myco midison innovations if you have a question for the ceo of myco shoot me a dm with the question i'll try my best to get it answered and if you have suggestions for which companies i should interview next or who i should talk to next you know leave me that feedback too and i'll try my best to make it happen i think that's it thanks again to doug for his time really appreciate it and thank you so much for watching until next time peace out